the Gilda's maximum lawyers community of legal entrepreneurs who are taking their businesses and lives to the next level. As a Guild member, you'll build relationships, be held accountable, and learn strategies specifically designed to get you unstuck and accelerate your plan for growth. Members are also granted exclusive access to masterminds hosted around the country. Our next event is coming up, and we're heading to Scottsdale, Arizona. There's something truly magical about the power of these in-person connections where real-time breakthroughs happen. Picture this. You're surrounded by like-minded law firm owners tackling your business and mindset challenges together. The energy is electric, the insights are transformative, and the results are game-changing. Investing in yourself is the best decision you'll ever make. The knowledge, strategies, and breakthroughs you'll gain are priceless assets that will supercharge your practice and propel you forward. Join the Guild and secure your ticket to Scottsdale at the best possible price by visiting maxlawevents.com. So, hey, Jimmy, did you hear about the special thing that's going to be going down in the Facebook group this week? Yeah, I hope everybody is paying attention because the front door of MaxLawCon 2019 is about to open. Yeah, and so we've got a special Max Lawyer-only pricing. It's going to be for 48 hours only. So at 12.01 a.m. on Thursday, prices are going to go up. The tickets are going to go up for sale. This is a limited time flash sale. It's going to end at 11.59 on Friday night and prices are going to be for only $249. So they're going to go up. There's going to be uh, early bird and super duper early bird and then regular pricing. They're going to start to go up as time goes by. So if you want to get in on the Facebook group only and maximum lawyer listener only pricing, Thursday and Friday are the time to do it. Because after that, we're not going to go back to that pricing. Yeah, a lot of people have been asking us, when is the cheapest time to buy? What should I be thinking about as far as getting tickets? Flash rate, a lot of people register early, but this is the earliest that they can register. I would really hope that anybody who already has it on their calendar would just go ahead and register now, not so much for us, but for them, because it's going to be, like you said, their best opportunity to get it. And it's also going to be a chance to include it on their 2018 taxes. Yes, and that's another good point. Now, you're going to be able to get in on the super duper early bird after this 48 hours, so the price is going to go up. So definitely get in by the end of the year so you can get that tax write-off. You're going to want to do it this Thursday and Friday and get it done and paid for because it's going to be by far the cheapest that we're going to have it for. So make sure you do that. So we hope you'll join us in St. Louis. It's going to be an awesome conference. And Jimmy, I seriously think we're going to sell out this year because we're utilizing, leveraging a lot of the members in our group to help us put the word out on this one. And I think it's going to go pretty quickly. So hopefully people will join us. All right, now let's get on to the show. Run your law firm the right way. The right way. This is the Maximum Liar Podcast. Maximum Liar Podcast. Your hosts, Jim Hacking and Tyson Mutrix. Let's partner up and maximize your firm. Welcome to the show. You're back on the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. I'm Jim Hacking. And I'm Tyson Mutrix. What's up, Jimbo? Tyson, my friend, it's good to hear your voice. It seems like it's been a while since we've recorded, and I know we have a lot scheduled this week to get some planned out ahead of time. Yeah, so just so people know, Jim, as of, I think, yesterday or Saturday, I'm pretty sure it was yesterday, said, hey, can we record every single day this week? And I was like, okay, sure. 
whatever. So we're going to do, I think we're going to do five this week. We're going to do two today and then one through Thursday. So it's going to be a busy week. All right. Well, I'm very excited about our guest today. Her name is Megan Xavier. She is with Xavier Law, and she is a lawyer for lawyers. I know she's a listener to the show. I'm sure she's had many times where she's been listening to our podcast and saying to herself, boy, that Jim and Tyson, they're sure screwing things up and they're violating this rule and that. So hopefully Megan can get us straightened out today. Megan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Jim. Thank you for having me, Tyson. Of course. So Megan, Jim gave a brief you know, look into what you do, but talk a little bit more in depth about what you do and then also why you decided to do that. Sure, absolutely. So like you said, I'm a lawyer for lawyers. So every single one of my clients is an attorney. Well, I should say a lawyer. I guess there's a difference, right? Not everyone's passed the bar, but I represent them mostly in state bar proceedings and disciplinary actions. I also represent applicants to the state bar who are having issues with their moral character applications. And I also do some general ethics consulting. Um, That's actually becoming a booming part of the business as we challenge some of the ethics rules out there and start to come up with some alternative business models and tech products, delivery of legal services through products, that kind of thing. Um, So I advise lawyers who are getting creative with the delivery of services. And I got into this, well, I guess about 10 years out of law school, I had had a federal clerkship and big law securities litigation experience and had kind of done as much of that as I wanted to do. <laughs> I had been in big law on the partnership track until I had my first child and then just kind of made the decision to opt out. Um, I will never say that big law pushed me out. It was not like that at all. I have a lot of jaded <laughs> memories of big law, um, but that's not one of them. I just realized that my life goals and career goals were no longer compatible. So we traveled quite a bit and moved several times. And one of those moves was overseas. And around the same time, I had started getting involved in California State Bar Defense. I had a person in my life who needed some help with the state bar, and I had gotten involved helping them, and that was the kind of thing that, you know, in big law, you weren't allowed to do anything that wasn't for a big law billable client, so I had sat on the sidelines, but when I left big law, I was able to jump in and help, and I really, really liked the work. I didn't get into it because I thought this was going to be my life's work. I got into it to help that one person, but once I was there... I really just found that I loved working with other lawyers. I loved the process, you know, of just helping them through the actual discipline investigations and court proceedings. And I decided I wanted to do this as a business, but we moved thousands of miles across an ocean away from the state of California. So I launched my practice intending to help primarily the self-represented lawyers. We have an awful lot of them going through the disciplinary process. And they're self-represented for various reasons, including a lack of resources and including a belief that they don't need help. So, you know, it runs the gamut, really, what the attitude is that leads them to be self-represented. But there's this huge contingent. So from Australia, I was providing consulting services to lawyers representing themselves in California. And that has evolved. I now live in Georgia and still represent lawyers in California. But I also do a lot more full scope representation, like fully representing them through the investigation and trial processes. 
Megan, you're obviously a very driven person. I note from your website two things that caught my eye. One is that you graduated Order of the Coif from law school at the age of 21 and that you're a Spartan racer. Talk to our listeners a little bit about both those things, will you? Yeah, so the age thing seems to be getting uh, you know less and less relevant as I get older, but that uh, my age was a huge factor through high school, college, and law school. So I graduated from high school when I was 15. I did some self-driven study, and I was able to finish early. And I already had college credits from performing in theater and taking some courses when I was a kid. So I graduated from college when I was 18 and then headed to law school and transferred in the middle from um, Quinnipiac College in Connecticut to Berkeley and finished there when I was 21. Yeah, so I was just always very motivated to do things at my own pace. And I love learning. I love structure and academics. So I was just in my element I in college and law school. I, I just loved it. So I sort of powered through. But now I do a lot of fun stuff on the race courses. Um, when you mentioned Spartan races, I absolutely love racing. I do obstacle course races, primarily Spartans, and also distance running. And that started, I guess, about four years ago. I did my first Spartan two years ago. And I've lost count now of how many I've done. But I've done as long of a distance as a Spartan Ultra, which is 30 miles or 30 plus, I think they say. I think mine was 32 so, yeah, I get out there on the course and do all kinds of crazy things and jump in mud and try and monkey my way across monkey bars and up over walls. And it is incredibly fulfilling and does some amazing things to your mental state. I wish that everyone would go and at least do one race that they look at and think there is no way in hell I can do that because there is something incredibly empowering about doing something that looks way too hard or just completely impossible when you're standing at the front end of it. And then getting to the end and looking back and realizing what you've accomplished, it carries over into everything in life. You know, it carries over into what I can do in the courtroom and how I can serve clients and how I can grow my business and what kind of a parent I am. It just impacts everything. So racing has been a huge part of my life for the last few years and has really been important to my growth. So, Megan, you've dealt with lawyers as clients and you've dealt with other types of clients. How are lawyer clients different than, like, let's say, big law clients? Well, I love lawyer clients. There's a lot of things that are different. You know, in, in big law, I represented some pretty sophisticated people. So I can't compare it as much to like consumer law, where you're really educating about the entire legal process for someone who's never been involved in it before. My big law clients tended to be hedge fund managers, accountants, other professionals to whom the legal system wasn't completely foreign, but still had to explain a lot of things, deal with the fact that a layperson's interpretation of how things should be is often a lot different than a lawyer's explanation of how things simply are in the legal system. I, I'm married to an accountant, and I, we have fewer of these discussions than we used to because he ended up with a minor in law, and he's gotten pretty sophisticated in law. But he used to be my reality check as to what normal people think when it comes to the legal system, right? When you're driving down the road and there's a pothole, I, can I sue someone for that? And well, yeah, you can. You'll lose, but you can sue them, right? There's like this disconnect between how the legal system works and a layperson's perception of how it should. And so with non-lawyer clients, 
even sophisticated ones, there's a lot of education that has to happen and the client is really being fully served by the lawyer and not always contributing a whole lot to the course of their representation. Representing lawyers, it's really easy to explain things. Like even if they think it's wrong, they conceptually get it. So when you say, I'm sorry, in state bar court, you don't have a right to remain silent. It's not a criminal proceeding. You know, two sentences and they're like, all right, that sucks. I thought I would, but I get it. Or, you know, these, this is the limit of your due process rights in state bar court. They can understand it pretty quickly and easily. So I enjoy that I can have those sort of intellectual discussions and not be having to go back to really rudimentary building blocks in my explanations. And also the lawyers really contribute to their own defense. If you say to an attorney, I'm going to need, you know, X, Y, and Z from your files so I can put this together, they know exactly what that is, how to present it to me, can dump it on me, even in their, you know, disorganized way, it's still way more organized than an average person would be able to give it to me. So we end up with a very collegial and kind of partnership arrangement in the representation. And I love that. It also helps me because as a solo, you know, we talk a lot in solo practice about how lonely it can be. Like you don't have the colleague to go walk down the hall and bounce an idea off of. Well, my clients are my colleagues. You know, we can call each other up and say, I had this crazy idea. Will this work for my defense? And we can talk about it. So they kind of substitute in for colleagues in a larger office sometimes. Megan, talk to us about running your firm away from California. How does that work? What do your clients think about that? And how do you do it logistically? Well, what clients think about it is an interesting question because I've noticed a real change over the last several years. So I launched originally from Australia, as I said, but then I've been in Georgia now for six years. And it used to be a lot more of a barrier. You know, people would see on my website or from my cell phone number or talking to me that I wasn't in state and they immediately, you know, start to put on the brakes and they say, well, you know, is it going to cost me more? Are you going to have to travel here? How does that all work? And it used to be sort of just a red flag to them. Now it really almost never comes into the discussion there's very little travel involved in this practice just because most cases are resolved at the investigation phase. So most of the time, there's no need for court appearances. We don't even get that far. And so with clients who do raise it, you know, we talk about it. But the fact is that even if I was down the street from them, most of our work would look exactly the same. A phone consultation, email me the documents, I'll email you a draft back. We'll talk on the phone about comments. You know, all of that stuff is done the same, whether I'm in town or not. And as we've all gotten much more used to doing business that way, not just because of me, but just as business has changed, where I am located has become less and less of a concern. So that's definitely been a bonus for me to not have as much explaining to do with that. I have a real presence in California because I've worked there for as long as I have. I was born and raised there, so it's not like I just picked the state off the map. And I've served for the state bar with now the California Lawyers Association on their solo and small firm committee. I'm, I think I'm, what am I now, two immediate past chairs out, but I was on that committee for many years. And so I've had enough of a connection with the state that it's not like I'm just an outsider, you know, phoning it in. 
And that's made a big difference. Logistically, I mostly work from where I live in Georgia. Every so often, I do need to go. I've perfected the day trip from Atlanta to San Francisco and Atlanta to Los Angeles. So I can now do that without needing a hotel for most of my appearances. But when I do need to go, I I have family still in the Bay Area, and I have a regular place that I stay in Los Angeles, and I've just got down the routine. You know, everyone at home steps up for me and takes care of my responsibilities here, and I jet out, do what I need to do, take all of my free time that I have there and pack as much work into it as I can, and I turn around and jet back. I imagine there's some, I guess, some resistance to reaching out to try to contact you if you've got an issue with the bar. I'm just curious, how do clients find you? How do lawyers find you whenever they've got an issue? That's a really good question and one I don't have a complete answer to because clients just often don't answer that question very clearly when I ask people how did they find me. Certainly my website is out there and I think a lot of people find me through Google searches. Referrals to a certain extent, although the reticence to talk about the fact that you have a state bar problem, I think really decreases how many of our cases come from referrals. And I'm just, I have a real presence on social media and my podcast is out there. So those I know I sometimes will get a phone call and people will say, I read an article that you wrote about my problem or I listened to your podcast and so I knew who to call when this cropped up. So people come from various places, but I never have quite complete data on that. Megan, you and I met face-to-face actually on stage when you were presenting at the Clio conference. We did. Yeah, right. That was fun. About information products. So one of the things that Tyson and I have talked about a lot is how lawyers can both help educate consumers with information products and sort of scale themselves by offering informational products. I think a lot of our listeners might not even understand what that means. So if you could sort of walk us through what you produced, I think it'd be really helpful. Absolutely. Information products can be almost any consumable media content that does not involve you talking individually to clients. So it can be videos, it can be an online course, it can be a book. We mostly talk about digital information products, like a downloadable book or an ebook, but it could be a physical book. Anything where you're educating people about their legal needs and legal issues without sitting down, you know, figuratively across the table, getting information about their specific situation and sitting back personalized advice. So what I've produced is called this the playbook, the California State Bar Discipline Practice Guide. And what it is is a guide to help people who are representing themselves through the California State Bar Discipline process. It takes a few forms. There's a, an interactive PDF with embedded videos. There's a forum for talking to each other, to other users of the product. And there's a library of sample documents and forms so that if you find yourself facing discipline in California, you can sign up for this product and download the PDF, read the book. It'll walk you through all the stages of the discipline process. You can refer to the form so you know how to produce the documents you need to produce throughout the litigation. And you can hop on the forum and talk to other people who are in a similar situation as you. My friend Jeff Birkin, who presented at CleoCon with me, has also produced information products. She has an online course 
she does nonprofit work. So she represents founders of nonprofits and she has a course. So that includes text and video content. So you can do a lot of different things with information products. And there's all kinds of avenues to get legal information out there. And like you said, it helps to scale. So there's only so many hours in a day. I mean, there's only so many clients that I can walk through the process of defending themselves before the state bar. Because at some point, I am supposed to get a bed at night, right? But my product could be downloaded and purchased by an unlimited number of people. And same with all the other information products out there. It's unlimited how much you can scale with information products. I know for a fact that there are a ton of lawyers out there that want to do something very, very similar. Jim and I have even discussed the possibility of doing something. How would you recommend people get started whenever they want to do something like this? And, and it could be a, a variety of whatever digital product uh, you, you just talked about, but how should people get started if they want to do it? Well, good question. And I'm not to like, you know, hawk my own wares, but the Clio talk where Jeff and I talked about this for an hour is available online now. And we can get that link in your show notes. So that's, you know, we've talked, we talked for a full hour, including some steps to take. But I'll tell you my, my number one thing that I would say, if you're considering this, that you've got to start with is sitting down with, I like butcher paper or just a huge spreadsheet or mind mapping tool, something unlimitedly big to just scrawl out all of your ideas and brainstorm what you could put out as an information product. And that as you start to brainstorm, the list gets really big. And for me, it's arrows and bubbles as you kind of map it all out. And then when you see how huge you could make it, pick the tiniest piece that you can start with out of all of that and develop that little idea. Put as much energy as you can into that one little slice because what we found, both Jess and me, as we developed these products was that we bit off more than was really feasible at the time. We didn't think we were, and we get pushed back from people who say, well, no, 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 this idea really isn't that big. Yeah, I didn't think it was either, okay? But I really probably should have written a piece on just how to respond to an investigation, right, that little piece. But what I did from investigation through appeal and all the videos and all of the forms all at once. So when you drill down and find a little tiny piece, of the overall thing that you think it could eventually grow into. You can put your energy into developing all of the nuances of that piece, start to test whether there's a market for it, start to figure out how you would deliver it in a really good way. So you put all the quality into that little piece. And if it works, then you can grow that piece into the huge idea that you originally had. And if it doesn't work, you can tweak it and figure out where you've gone wrong without having invested, you know, hundreds of hours and Lord knows how much money into developing too big of an idea. One last question on that, Megan. What's the feedback that you've been receiving from people who've downloaded the product? And have there been any expectations that you somehow then become their lawyer? I know you're dealing with actual lawyers, so that's probably not as much of a concern. But I know that a lot of lawyers are skittish about doing something like this because they're worried about the follow-up or that there might be a client or person who thinks they're a client. So a lot of people do put ethics 
concerns at the top of their list for why they shouldn't do informational products or other innovative things. And I just say, like, there's, there's ways around that. You know, you have to be very clear in your communication. And what I find with particularly representing other lawyers and, and my products being geared towards them, they understand that they're not clients. But I was surprised, and maybe I, I should have known this, but I didn't, how many users would end up wanting one-on-one consulting through the process. So most of them, they buy the product because they can't afford to hire me to represent them to go through the whole trial. And I totally get that. And that was actually the original target market for these services, both, you know, in-person services and the digital product. It's to get to the people who really should have some guidance but can't afford full scope representation. But because that was my market, I was thinking they aren't going to want or need or be able to afford to then buy time from me to sit down and go through their cases. I underestimated the need for the hand-holding. And so what I have found is that even though they realize that by buying the product, I'm not their lawyer, they want me to be one for them. And so then I've started offering more packages where they can have me on board to consult and talk through things. They don't need nearly as much from me as they would without the product, but they sometimes want the reassurance that, yes, you're using the product correctly. Yes, you've done the right thing. You know, listen to their story and help guide them. So that was the thing that that I underestimated. I feel like we sort of glossed over your podcast a little bit. You talked about it a little bit. Will you talk a little bit more about what the podcast is and and what's it for and what's the name of it so people can can listen to it if they want to hear it? Sure. It's called Lawyers Gone Ethical, and it is, as you probably guess, a legal ethics podcast. And we talk about a lot of different things. So we do some solo episodes, so just me chatting away, you get to listen to me, but on some topics of things, you know, that are changing in the ethics world or specific things that people should be looking out for when they're developing their firms. So as we do episodes on different social media platforms and best practices to utilize them and stay within the bounds of the ethics rules. And we also do a lot of guest episodes. So my guests are from all different aspects of the legal industry. I don't know that I've had a non-lawyer. I think everyone, and I know that's like a loaded term now, but I think everyone I've had on has been an attorney, but we talk about all different aspects of the profession. So I've had a disbarred attorney who's now a professor of law talking about addiction and disbarment. We've talked with professors about the stress of law school and moral character applications, talked to practicing lawyers about developing products, about new ethics rules and what they mean for them. So we talk about all different aspects of the profession and how it comes back to the ethics rules. And since the ethics rules are so often thrown up in front of us as roadblocks, at least perceived roadblocks, we try and empower attorneys listening to the show to recognize that the rules don't necessarily stop them from doing things they want to do. They just impose upon them a certain set of guidelines and a need for best practices to navigate, you know, things like social media and advertising and growing your firm in a way that they'll not end up one of my clients. I love it. I love it. Megan, I spend a lot of time meeting with lawyers who are thinking about going on on their own or people that listen to the show. And I've often encouraged people to start their own podcast. And I think that most of the people that are in our group are pretty sophisticated 
and that for a lot of them, a podcast could really take them a long way. And I really liked the point you made earlier, just a little side note that you made, which was that lawyers love to say, oh, the ethical rules won't let me do that. The ethical Uh rules won't let me do this. Could you talk a little bit about the value of podcasting and then also about that mindset of, oh, you know, ethics rules trump all? Well, I think podcasting is an amazing media. I mean, I have learned more by doing a podcast than by listening to them and attending conferences. Just the people you meet and the conversations you have are amazing. And it really requires you to dive into these topics that you might gloss over otherwise. You know, I'll have a guest pitch to me or a friend that I say, oh, I would love to talk to you about some issue. For example, I talked to Jason Beam a couple of weeks ago about cannabis loss. I had glossed over cannabis law since it became a thing, right? California lawyer, I get a million emails from CLE providers and all, hey, you learn about cannabis law. Well, I haven't needed to. It hasn't really been a thing for me. So it's been just in the periphery. Well, I was going to talk for an hour about it with someone who's practicing it. I had to learn about it. And now I do know quite a bit more than I ever imagined I would know about pot. And it's really interesting. Well, I wouldn't have done that if it wasn't podcasting. So it forces me to be more aware of things outside of my immediate practice. And I learn a lot and I get to talk to all kinds of people and it just gives me a platform. And I love that about it. You know, I think anyone who wants to dive into their specific area of practice more, you know, I guess deeper into it and learn as much as they can about it and have more conversations about it. Starting a podcast is a great way to force yourself into it. So I think it's a wonderful idea. To the people who throw up the ethics rules as a barrier all the time, uh, I kind of want to scream and throttle them sometimes. I understand that we come from a profession where we are really risk averse. We are taught from the first day of law school that here's all the things that can go wrong if you're not careful. And our professional responsibility class in law school is just a bunch of horror stories. And we, of course, come out really timid. If you don't go out on your own right away, which not that I'm saying that's a great thing to do straight out of law school, I would have been massively incompetent. And I think a lot of us would be. Um, But if we don't come out and go on our own, that means that we worked at some point for one or more more seasoned lawyers. And most likely, they were also really conservative. It's just the odds in this profession are that you're going to be dealing with a bunch of lawyers who are risk averse. And that leads us to just be gun shy. And we believe that the ethics rules must stop us. So if we have an idea or we look around and we see that no one else is doing something that we're thinking about doing, our knee-jerk reaction is we must not be allowed to. And it's really unfortunate. I think that it's important that everyone actually learns what the rules call for and require and prohibit. We can't just assume that just because something is new or innovative, it must be prohibited by the rules. The rules create a set of parameters that we have to operate within, but they're actually not going to prohibit a lot of things that we want to do. This is an absolutely action-packed episode, but unfortunately, we do have to wrap it up. But before I do, I want to remind everyone to go to the Facebook group where people are just posting every single day. It's kind of amazing. We had someone that just opened his firm and posted, just basically asked for general advice. And there were, I think that there's over 100 comments right now just on that one 
So really incredible. And, and William Eady really said it best just about how great the group is, just willing to con- contribute. To, so uh, thanks for everyone that do contribute. And if, if you're listening to this and you've not been on the Facebook group, join the Facebook group. It's There's a lot of great content. And then also, if you if you don't mind, go to iTunes or wherever you podcast. Give us a five-star review so we can really spread the love. So, Jimmy, what's your hack of the week? All right. So first of all, I want to mention that I listened to Megan's last episode of her podcast, and she had some really good tips on year-end ethics things for lawyers to be thinking about. So I definitely think that if you're going to start with Megan's podcast, starting with the most recent episode wouldn't be a bad thing. Now, for my hack of the week, I actually have two things. They sort of go together. A couple weeks ago, Google released some new tools that allow you to assess how your website is doing. And one is its web.dev website. So you can go to web.dev backslash measure. And it tells you all the things that you should fix on your website. It also scores you on things like your SEO, your best practices you can do on your accessibility and on your web performance. And then right along with that, they also released a new page speed insight page, which tells you how fast your page is loading. So we'll put the links to both of these in the show notes. And I'm sad to say that, of course, after checking my own website, the first thing I did was check Tyson. And Tyson is doing much better than me on both the web dev measure and on the page speed. And in fact, when it comes to SEO, Google gave Tyson's webpage 100 out of 100, which sort of boggles my mind. So I'll be having a conversation with my friend Seth J. Price and the folks at Blue Shark because I don't like to get beat, especially by Tyson. But everybody should use these tools to check out how their website is doing. You know what, Jimmy? Here's the best part of all this. I didn't pay anybody to do it. I did it myself with the guidance of my good buddy, William Eady. William Eady gave me some tips. I followed the tips and did that. And so uh, it's been great. So it makes me so happy to know that I'm beating you in that category. So I I love it. Megan, you've listened to the podcast. So what is your tip or hack of the week? Mine would have to be, and this is, you know, goes back to my podcast episode that Jim just mentioned. I want everybody to go read their ethics rules before the end of the year. Well, that's actually a good one. I guess I should too, because I've never actually gone through and read all of them. It seems like a really hefty task, but... uh... It's actually not. See, that's that's why it can be a hack. It's short enough to actually be a hack. They're not that long. They're really not. And and if you just read through them once, you'd probably be blown away by, oh, it didn't say this and it didn't say that that I thought was in there. And maybe there's some nugget that is that you really should have recognized. And so, you know, it's literally like an hour task at most to just sit there and skim through your, your state rules. I, I love it. Okay. I will do that. I will commit to doing that by the end of the year. Great. All right. So my tip is not, I guess it's more of a tip. It's not really a hack or anything else, but our good buddy Jay Ruane has been getting into the Alexa skills. And I know, Jim, that you have done it as well. So I, what I call this is more of an insider's tip. I think that this, according to people like Jay Ruane, who is a really smart guy, I think this may be sort of the next thing. So the tip is to go out and do some research on Alexa and get involved because I have had a problem, like really problem conceptualizing how it's even going to work and how to get started. So I'm going to do some research before the end of the year. That's also on my list to, to sort of dive into. So my tip is to, to jump into that. And Jimmy, do you have any feedback on Alexa? Because I know you've done a little bit of research on it. 
Yeah, we had a, a daily flash briefing each day. Um, we sort of let it die off just because I was doing just sort of life tips and things. And, I, you know, as I often do, I got distracted. It's it's good. I, I just think that the market is really, really small right now. But, you know, Gary V is big on audio and he thinks that it's a, a thing that's going to be a force. All right. So that's this week's episode. Megan, thank you so much for coming on. This has been really just a lot of a lot of great information packed into a small amount of time. So thank you so much. Well, thank you both for having me. Solid, Megan. Thanks. Have a good week. Thanks for listening to the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. Maximum Lawyer Podcast. To stay in contact with your hosts and to access more content, more content. go to MaximumLawyer.com. MaximumLawyer.com. Have a great week and catch you next time.